lot of information that I will make sure to get through. And you know what? I could have had more. You know, it was just too cold out that trick-or-treating, so I had to go in early. It was snowing out. It was... I had to put a coat on over my costume. Yeah, so well, cool. sorry that I'm trick-or-treating in the Midwest, and that's how Halloween works up here. Haddonfield, Illinois. <laughs> Welcome back, <laughs> ghouls and goblins to Square Horror. I'm your Duke of Spook, Danny. And I am the Devil's Eyes Master of Ceremonies. And I'm Ooh. looking at the, at the at a blank, pale, emotionless face of the Duke of Spook, mainly because he had to sit through even just 20 seconds of the <laughs> Silver Shamrock ad from Season of the Witch. You'll hear it later and you'll understand why it hurt me so. Guys. Guys. We're gonna cover Halloween. <laughs> we are covering... 11 movies over the next four I'm parts. taking this one episode at a time. We're covering Halloween. We're covering, We're covering Halloween, the first one. 1978. We're, so, yeah, so this is the this is our first franchise breakdown. And, I mean, we're starting to realize what we're getting ourselves into here. I mean, I know what I'm getting myself into. Is I guess I'm realizing I guess realizing you're going to have to catch up <laughs> pretty quickly. Get on my level for, like, knowing all the intricacies of say, how screwed up I just came home are. from class and that was like... You ready? Are you ready? Because I have four documents. I'm ready to release the documents. So, and there's a lot of stuff that I also just, like, I didn't write down, but I also just have in my mind now. Okay. Like, there's just background, and you know how we talked about, and we're going to get into it a lot in this series. Um, I don't want to do as much of, like, a big film school breakdown of, like, the whole history of productions and whatnot. I want to try to not do that as much as possible. But it's just too much to cover. Yeah, but I think that. when it comes to franchises, it's like the story with it, like of the macro story mm -hmm. is of like what is the story of this franchise? Why does it do the things that it does? Yes. I think whenever we get to Friday the 13th, we're going to have to take a month out to just go through the 30 years, 40 years now that yeah. that's been out and just how every single movie was just a tooth and nail battle. Mm -hmm. To get made, and now like it, oh, yeah, the, now it's in a whole legal battle of who owns the rights. It's to it been anymore. in a legal battle for like ten years, mm -hmm. and it's Ever never the you know, yeah. remake. It's never going to be resolved. No, um, Halloween. I think so. There's the two different types of it. There's like one that's in a perpetual stalemate that will never be made again, as in Friday the Thirteenth, and there's one that just is like Michael Myers, is in an endless curse of <laughs> revivals and deaths because. It's just they get pawned off like mm -hmm. it's a it like like it it is a curse. Um, the big soul of the, of the franchise in general does operate on you know it's that classic thing of so John Carpenter made Halloween yes and yeah it wasn't technically the first slasher but it redefined it everything slashers to the main it, like it's the reason why horror as we know now exists yes and absolutely. Because of its its success, obviously people are like, well, that makes a lot of money, mm -hmm. so they want yeah. more. This movie was the highest grossing independent film of its time. Yeah, yeah. It was made for $300,000 and profited $47 million at the box office. So the fact of the matter is, so like, fans are fans. I mean, it doesn't really oh, matter. Yeah. What the big thing is, is if a studio says it makes money, notices it makes money... You're gonna do not more. I don't care. They, they don't care that you're John Carpenter and that mm -hmm. you're this masterful artistic director. They're like, 
make another one of those things because it will make us money. Yeah. He did the first one alone. Yes. So Universal saw the success, got the rights, Mm -hmm. made Halloween 2 happen. Yes. And they wanted more. And then Halloween 3 happened, failed, so they pawned it off. And I'll get into it more of, like, Mm -hmm. the cycle. And it will especially be in the next one, but then they gave it to Miramax. Miramax. And then Miramax owned it and then developed into Dimension. And then Dimension Mm -hmm. had it until... Uh, who's making it? Blumhouse? Blumhouse is making it now. So before we get into all that, uh, now what, 42 years ago now? Yeah. 42 42 years years ago. Um, almost exactly now with like the, with a three day, I think came out on the 24th. That sounds about right. Um, so almost 42 years ago to the day, Halloween came out. And, uh, so... Again, because we don't, we're not operating on any assumptions that the listeners know what Halloween is. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that they've heard about Michael Myers. I'm sure they've heard the theme. I mean, we use it as the intro. The theme was the intro because I just love it so much. I mean, it's you can't, you know it. You, you know what that is. You can't avoid it if it is October. So we're gonna get into it for those of you that don't know, and we're gonna cover the first three movies. So we're covering Halloween, the Halloween sequel. Two. And then Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Yeah, all three. And we're going to call this one, I think, the the, the Carpenter Trilogy. Because yes. even though he wasn't directly involved in the making of... Well, he was obviously... He did all of this one alone. Yes. Two, less so. Three, even less so. Yeah, two, he was still yes. an integral part yeah. to, but it wasn't his yeah. He wrote design. two, he still had input on two. Three... Three was just, he had a concept. He, he had this concept. He kind of produced it. So, before all of that, 1978 Halloween. Yes. So, you don't know the plot of this movie. It's 15 years after murdering his sister on Halloween night, 1963... Michael Myers escapes from a mental hospital and returns to the small town of Haddonfield, Illinois to kill again. Yes. So, d- obviously directed, written, and scored and by, John by John Carpenter. Uh, John Carpenter uh, is a prolific um, artistic horror director. He's Absolutely. done The Fog, the remake of The Thing, uh, Prince of Darkness, Village of the Damned. He also directed Stephen King's Christine. Mm-hmm. Um and so you said before, so, you know, this was more of a horror at the time. It was not really, slashers were not the, the known. I say, the only other slasher that was, like, in kind of the mainframe at this point was the original Black Christmas. Yes. I was looking, so the first kind of real slasher, quote-unquote, is Psycho. It's, it's uh, what's that, 1960? From 1960. Uh, and then 1974 is Black Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw a lot of interviews with the director of Black Christmas, Bob Clark, who yes. said, um, you know, he and John Carpenter talked a lot after Black Christmas came out, and it wasn't so much that John Carpenter stole the idea for Black Christmas, it's like, he even said, he's like, the entire thing was his own idea. Mm-hmm. He just wanted to kind of do something in that spirit. So, yeah. So, he did the movie for only $10,000. Like, that was his cut. Okay. He d- wrote, directed, and scored it for $10,000. That's nothing. You don't you don't see people putting in that much passion. Anymore. No, no. And he co-wrote it with Deborah Miller, who I'll get to. Uh, Deborah, sorry, Deborah Hill, who I'll get mm-hmm. to in a second. Uh, ten days was all it took to write the movie. Wow. Uh, so when they kind of co-wrote it, Carpenter kind of took more because if you notice in the movie, there's kind of two plots happening. There's the, yes. the the Dr. Loomis plot, who's Michael Myers's uh, psychiatrist, mm-hmm. who's who's you know 
following Michael back to his hometown to convince people that he's pure evil and should be destroyed. Yes. And the other plot follows Laurie Strode and her friends, who are all babysitters on Halloween yeah, night. they're teenagers in high school. Yeah. So, you know, Carpenter took Loomis's like, dark speeches and all of these, you know, moralistic rants, and Hill tackled the babysitter dialogue, because she had been a babysitter in high school. Um, which I think is why those characters seem so realistic. Yes. Um, and, and so easily, you know, translate to now, even oh, 40 yeah. years removed. Um, I also found this fun thing. Carpenter also did the voice of the of Annie's boyfriend, Paul, when she calls. So that's <laughs> him. Because I've always wondered who that might have been. I thought it was, I thought it might have been like Nick Castle doing mm-hmm. it or something, but no, it was John Carpenter did it. Um, about, like, the formulation of the movie, because it's such a striking thing, and one of the main reasons it has persisted is because of the, you know, normally horror movies take place in the middle of nowhere, you know, especially in America, they take place away from society, you know, this was in a suburb, this was in, you know, it could have been any town in 1978, yeah, USA. And it could have been any town. It could have been any town, and especially at the time when like most towns looked like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he said that most small towns have a kind of haunted house story of one kind or another. You know, you know, it's what teenagers believe. There's always oh, yeah. some house down the lane that someone was killed in or someone went crazy in, and he really wanted to capture that essence, mm-hmm. you know, and make it you know super, you know, scary to anybody. Yeah. You know, anyone could be there, um, which. Translates perfectly to Deborah Hill, who was his then girlfriend. Uh, mm-hmm. She worked with him on several of his movies, especially during that time period. Um, she's also produced this movie. She's also produced the Dead Zone, Stephen King's movie. Okay. She produced Clue, Adventures in Babysitting, <laughs> um, and when she was writing it, in addition to tackling the, um, you know, the, 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 the not the cheerleader, the babysitter Baby. sort of stuff, um, she wanted to kind of. You know, because once they started to center it around a holiday, namely Halloween, because mm-hmm. can you believe at the time no movie had ever been set like with like, Halloween as Halloween, the theme? Yeah, like that's crazy to me. Like to think about that now, when there's so many movies that are centered around hundreds, Halloween, hundreds, and they are all basically inspired by oh, this yeah. movie. And we'll probably get to them more one day, like when we'll cover more like slashers of the '80s that mm-hmm. came after Halloween. It was a scramble to make slashers on every holiday you could think oh, of. Yeah. Silent Night, Deadly Night for Christmas, Valent- uh, or My Bloody My Valentine, Valentine, April Fool's Day. Um, I mean, they're just everywhere. The Stepfather, all of this yeah. stuff. And this was the first one. But in addition to just being Halloween, she really wanted to tap into the like roots of Halloween. like The roots mm-hmm. of the holiday being the pagan festival of Samhain, which... They should. They talk about more in two, mm-hmm. but she wanted to have it more. There's not. It's not addressed in this movie, but she kind of touches on it a little bit. Um, and she says on that is the idea is that you couldn't kill evil, and that it was how we came about the story. Mm-hmm. You know, like because Michael Myers is the shape. He's not Michael yeah, Myers. He's not called Michael yeah. Myers. He's called. I actually read the shooting script of the original mm-hmm. Halloween movie, and not, except for when he is a child, he is never yeah, addressed never, as yeah. Michael Myers, except for the one time his mask comes off for a second. Yeah, and every other time, including after that, he is known as the shape. Well, and that's cool because like I think it was Deborah Hill or Tommy Lee Wallace talks about the mask too, but in that same aspect mm-hmm. of so. Um, they're kind of talking about this like evil that doesn't die; it's more force than yeah. person. 
Uh, so they went back to the idea of old, the old idea of Samhain, that uh, Halloween was the night where all souls are let out to wreak havoc on the living, and then came up with a story about the most evil kid who ever lived. And when John came up with this fable of a town with a dark secret of someone who once lived there, and now the evils come back, that's what made it work. So Carpenter got that idea for, like, it being a child, apparently from a scary story. So... His inspiration for, like, the evil that Michael Myers embodies comes from this visit he had during college when he went to a psychiatric institution in Kentucky. So, like, uh, one of those, like um, Smith's Grove, it's in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. People are sent to this place and never seen again. So there he visited a ward with his psychology classmates where the most serious mentally ill patients were held. Among those patients was an adolescent boy who possessed a blank schizophrenic stare. So in all those stories that Loomis talks about Michael as a child just staring at the wall Mm -hmm. for, you know, a decade, not speaking, not emoting, not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, you, if you, first of all, that's very unnerving already, but then to to fill that with, it's a dormant evil that is Mm -hmm. waiting to just get out. Yeah. It's very, very frightening. Well, and I will say, I think one of the biggest accomplishments early on in this movie is the first scene of this movie is all a point-of-view shot of just someone in a mask mm-hmm. that's going around and killing. And anyone who's familiar with Michael Myers knows him as an adult. And it isn't until the mask is taken off at the end of, like, the four- or five-minute mark into this movie. And one take, too. That all they in always one do take that. that we've seen someone get murdered, and then we find out it was a six-year-old boy. I think it is... So frightening to be like, oh shit. Because yeah, a lot of slashers at the time were doing that sort of POV shot thing. Uh, Friday the 13th famously mm-hmm. does it. Black Christmas does it a lot. But, but we, it was always an adult yeah, but, killer. Well, it's either you never see those people and then later on they're revealed to be adults. Not only do you reveal that this, you reveal this killer right away. Like, this isn't going to be the movie. Yeah. Like, this is not the killer of the movie, per se. You know, this is a child. And now, as an adult, you're still going to get POV from him, but you get this different... Like, it's not him moving. It's him watching people. And just breathing heavily. The heavy breathing in the mask is very It's unnerving, and I love it. Like, the end of the movie... Like, that, the last maybe 25 seconds of the movie are just shots of everywhere that has been in the movie... With nobody there and just, just an over thing, yeah, a, like an, a voiceover of just him breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, so to kind of touch back on the Psycho homage, there's several Alfred Hitchcock, you know, ties to this movie. Oh yeah, um, Tommy Doyle, who's the little boy that Laurie's is babysitting, is named after Lieutenant De- Lieutenant Detective Thomas J. Doyle, who is the cop from Rear Window. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dr. Loomis's name was derived from Sam Loomis, who is the the boyfriend of Marion Crane from Psycho. Marion yes. Crane's character, played by Janet Leigh, whose mother is of uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. And this is Jamie Lee Curtis's first feature film role. Yeah, she was relatively unknown at the time. She was on TV, like she was on mm-hmm. a TV show at the time. But yeah, movie wise, she As was I, unknown. And she's she was the only babysitter actress who was actually a teenager when they. Yeah, filmed she was this. nineteen years old. So, it's it's super cool that I guess we could jump to Jamie Lee Curtis first. So she obviously. She's been all over the place, especially oh, yeah. in a lot of people our age's lives, especially for the Freaky 90s. Freaky Friday. She's the mom in Freaky Friday. She's in True Lies, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. 
Um, most recently, she's been in Scream Queens, New Girl, Knives Out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she's 19 years old at the time. She got paid $8,000 for the role, mm-hmm. which is pretty small of a sum, but granted, it was an That's independent it. movie. Comparing and... it to John Carpenter's 10000 for all that he did. Yeah, I'll get more to... I, I actually found a little blurb about what everyone got paid, mm-hmm. and as we go to the cast, I want, see, I want you to guess how much I got paid. Okay. So, she... Like you said, she was a teenager. She initially had reservations about the role of Lori because she felt that, like, she identified more with the other female characters. Mm-hmm. You know, because she, Lori is that, you know, archetype of the final virgin. You know, she doesn't, you know, do drugs. She doesn't drink. She doesn't go out and have sex. She's very responsible. Yes. And she's like, I was very much a smart elect. You know, I, she did cheerleading in high school. She's like, I felt very concerned that I was being considered for the quiet, repressed young woman when I, in fact, I was very much like the other two. <laughs> Which is fantastic, especially because um, she goes on to be in several Scream Queen roles oh, as yeah. final girls. So mm-hmm. I think that it was, you know, she was like, I guess I just did it well enough that people liked it. Yeah. <laughs> so... So the two obviously huge ones, Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie and the other lead, the the draw of the movie, at least at least at the time, was Donald Pleasance, who plays Sam, Sam who Lewis. plays Dr. Loomis. Um, passed away in ninety five. He yes. was in every Michael Myers Halloween movie up until Curse of Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of his last movies, and then he passed away. Yes. He was acting since the fifties, mm-hmm. like right up until his death. He yeah. never retired. Um I don't know if a lot of our audience will have seen any of his movies. His big ones are like The Great Escape. It's a it's a mm-hmm. big Stephen Queen movie. Yeah. He was acting opposite Christopher Lee as Dracula once. Uh, so I mean, he used really? to do, he used to do Dracula movies all the time. Mm-hmm. So he was in one of the Christopher Lee Dracula movies. I love that. He was um, Blofeld in You Only Live Twice and James Bond villain. Um, guess how much he got paid for this movie? I actually know uh, how much. I know he was on set for five days and he received twenty thousand yeah, dollars. Twenty grand for five days work. Yeah. So. We'll get into that story that you told me about why he took it in a second, but I just want to say that they passed over Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee originally to play Dr. Loomis. Peter Cushing, you know, famously known for Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars, mm-hmm. um, and Christopher Lee obviously has been in a bunch of different stuff, namely Dracula, he's in Lord of the Rings, a lot of Tim Burton stuff. Uh, the Star Wars prequels. Yeah, yeah. Count all over the place. Um... But do you remember why he said he ended up doing it? I don't remember. Off the oh, top of my I, head. I wrote it down. You wrote it down. So I was so frantically searching. He ended up for doing it. it because his daughter, who was a guitar player, like a professional guitar player, really <laughs> liked John Carpenter's score for Assault on Precinct Thirteen, mm-hmm. and he's like, "I guess I'll do it." Which is like for a lot of we kind of touched on it. Um, I think for Rob Zombie's movies, but you know, a lot of the draws of getting of getting horror films made now. I'm breaking through. Mm-hmm. A lot of people go to famous actors of the genre to just get up here in their movies. Like Robert Englund does that all the time. Oh yeah. So he, it's kind of cool that you know he, he had an actor who wasn't a horror genre actor. He was just a huge movie star of the time mm-hmm. to be in this independent slasher film, which normally and then subsequently after would get panned. Mm-hmm. Like, these movies were not... They were very cheaply done. They were seen as very sleazy and risque, especially Friday the 13th. Yes. Because it was... 
the guys that made it used to make softcore pornography, mm-hmm. as you can probably tell. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, John Carpenter is a very accomplished filmmaker. And he yeah, just happened absolutely. to make a slasher movie, which is why Halloween has persisted among all the other ones because it broke through early on. Mm-hmm. The way it's shot is fantastic. The score is fascinating. Well, and one thing I'll say about the original Halloween, especially in comparative to a lot of other slashers that became famous at that time, the Halloween kills are not graphic in the original no. movie. No. They are very tame for a slasher flick. There are only four, five there are kills, five kills in, this in the movie yeah. in total. Four of them are on screen. Yes. And of the four that are on screen, two of them, granted, two of them are done to nude women. Yes. But they're done tastefully. Like, when Michael Myers kills his sister, mm-hmm. she's naked, but he's not looking at her. He's, he's looking, looking at, at himself doing it. Yeah. He's looking at the knife, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's indicative of it's a, it's a presence inhabiting a form doing things. Yes. It's this, it's this outside, it's inward looking out perspective. Mm-hmm. And then when he kills... Um, Linda's her Linda. name. Uh, it's very creepy, and it's right mm-hmm. after one of the most famous shots in the movie of him in the in the sheet with the glasses on. Yeah, you know, well, posing as her boyfriend. That's right after one. I would argue one uh, another one. Yep. Famous shots, which is him watching his victim, who he just impaled on a door above the ground, yeah. hanging off of this blade. Yeah, he only kills one person by stabbing them, and he kills two people with a knife. And it's not in the, you know, normal slasher fashion. Like, he's strangling... Nan- not Nancy. Nancy's the actress's name. <laughs> Annie. I'm, I know... I'm calling everyone by their actress's <laughs> names because I've just been reading all about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, he's strangling Annie, and then he slits her throat, yes. and he strangles uh, L- L- Linda. Linda. So most of his kills are very close, mm-hmm. and they're very... Um, Methodical. Michael Myers kills people very cleanly. Yes. He kills them, he gets right to it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, playing around. Like, everything that he does to somebody, if he's going to kill them, is to kill them. I would say, the only time I would argue he's playing around with his victims is just when he's watching them from the background. And not he's doing so anything. so far away, just standing there, just watching. It's, he does nothing. He's either driving around or just standing and watching them. Mm-hmm. Or driving around and getting out of his car and standing and watching. (laughs) So when he does kill, it's like a switch gets flipped Mm -hmm. and he starts... There is no, like, toying with his victims like Freddy Krueger. There's no grandioseness of suffering like Jason Voorhees. There's no, you know, chase as much as, like, a Mm -hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's, he's going to kill you or you're Laurie Strode. (laughs) (laughs) And then when the case, it's, and even then it's like, he's not letting her get away. Like, the only reason that he doesn't kill her four different times is because she fights she back. She fights back. Effectively. Yeah. So, just to finish up with the cast, the two aforementioned uh, other female leads is Nancy mm-hmm. Loomis, who plays, um... Linda? Lynn, no. Annie? <laughs> Annie. So Nancy Loomis, <laughs> um, she was in Assaults on Precinct 13. She was, she's worked with John Carpenter before. She shows up in Halloween 3 for like... A couple seconds. She oh, plays yeah. the doctor's husband, a wife, ex-wife. She's also married to Tommy Lee Wallace, who is like 
the guy that did all the artistic direction and location stuff for this movie and directed Season of the Witch. Mm -hmm. And as we said in our It episodes, directed the miniseries. Yes. Um, and then PJ Souls has been in Carrie. She was in Carrie in 74. Yes. Which is kind of what got John Carpenter to write this role specifically for her in mind. Mm -hmm. um, she also has showed up going off our stuff. She was been in The Devil's Rejects. Mm -hmm. um, she's been in lots of other stuff. She's another one of those actresses who does genre films a lot. Yes. And a big draw for those films is that she's in them. I mm -hmm. think particularly she's in... Uncle Sam, I believe, is that really bad oh, holiday gosh. slasher movie. Yeah, it is. Um, and you told me this, and then I, I got it confirmed later, is that at the time she was dating Dennis Quaid. Mm -hmm. Pretty cool. Um, and he was considered for Bob, who was her character's boyfriend, but he yes. was doing other stuff, so he couldn't yeah, do he it. he was unavailable. Man, that would have been so cool. Dennis Quaid got to do it. Dennis Quaid in this movie. Man, especially because I... Dennis Quaid's in a lot of stuff now, mm -hmm. and like I haven't, I hadn't seen him when he was a young man, like his movies until much, much later in my life. Yeah, I mean, like the big thing I remember watching Dennis Quaid in when I was growing up was he was the Reverend in the remake of Footloose. Oh God! Yeah, because yeah. the original one's um, John Lithgow, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, Dennis Quaid, especially because he's um. The father of Jack Quinn, who plays Huey on The Boys. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, that's so strange. So, uh, going, so finishing out for the cast, we, Mike, the guy that plays Michael Myers, the guy that plays The yes. Shape, there's several of them. There, <laughs> and movie. there had to be. So, particularly, Nick Castle did most of the work for The Shape. Mm -hmm. Guess how much he got paid a day? A day? Yeah, a day. Oh, I... They didn't have a They didn't have a whole rate because he probably was only there for like a, a week. I say, I would probably guess like 50 bucks a day. Half that. 25 bucks a day. Really? So he got on there Ooh. because he was friends with John Carpenter while they were at the University of Southern California. And I found out that they were in a band together. Because John yeah. Carpenter obviously yeah. is big into music. And Nick Castle, as we'll find out later when he wrote August Rush, mm -hmm. also super into music. That's right. So the I two of them. That. Oh my God. <laughs> you know what's great is so when they did that show at the Paramount, mm -hmm. he's in the Playbill because he is wrote he really? the because he wrote the movie. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'm just like Nick Castle, the shape. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> it's it's one of those classic things of like normally people that become slasher icons, they just happen to be in it, mm -hmm. and then they just get to play them all the time. This is the reverse, is that a lot of the people that were in these movies, like, for instance, in my research, the guy that, so, the first person that Michael Myers kills as an adult mm -hmm. is a mechanic, so he can get his jumpsuit. Yes. Loomis just stumbles upon that body while he's calling, I think, the sheriff to be like, hey, tell them to get, like, the National Guard here. Yeah. And they pan out, and there's just, like, the head, shoulder, and hand of a guy mm -hmm. who's dead. So that guy is a huge producer now. He's done pretty much anything that anybody in, like, Adam... He's done like, almost every Adam Sandler movie, like, in the last 10 or 15 oh, years. Uh -huh. He's done, um, like, Just Go With It. He did Pixels. Like, a lot of, like, mm. those comedy, like, yeah. writers, he's worked with them. He produces a lot of their stuff. Okay. And I feel like they just threw him in there because he was, like, visiting oh, set one day. Yeah. Or he might have been giving them, you know, money. Like, he might have been, like, working for Mustafa Akkad at the time, who was producing the movie. Yes. Um, and just gave him in there. Like, Nick Castle just knew John Carpenter and was, like, you know, 23, 25 at the time and was mm -hmm. like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, you can do this. And then he went to go on and 
direct. He directed Dennis the Menace. He direct. He was a producer. Um, I can't remember the name. It's like um, something about like a spaceship or something like that. But it's a movie that both the lead actors of um, Season of the Witch are in. They're both in this oh. movie that Nick Castle directed. Okay. And uh, he also is a screenwriter. As I said, he wrote August Rush. He also wrote Hook. Nick like, Castle. Like Robin Williams Hook? The, the, he wrote the screenplay for Hook. Huh. I don't know how many people did, but well, he wrote he part, of part of it. He part of it at least. Which is crazy. Um, so he plays the shape when he's wearing the mask. Um, I would say maybe 95% of the time that he's in the mask, it's this guy. A couple times it was like Tommy Lee Wallace got in there. I don't know when. Yeah. But he's in there sometimes. Well, um, I heard that um, part of the reason the mask is a little different in the second movie. I actually have is it. Because he would just put it in his back pocket between takes and be like, this is fine. That's, course, that's, that's just That wasn't even listed as one of the reasons, but that also checks out. Mm -hmm. So, also, in that scene that we mentioned where his mask comes off while he's yes. fighting with Laurie at the very end, right before Loomis shoots him off a balcony, Tony Moran plays the unmasked Michael Myers. <clears throat> and Tony Moran was one of those guys that in Hollywood would just stand on corners dressed as, like, Frankenstein mm -hmm. for money. Like, he just was, like, one of those guys. Um, he got paid 250 bucks for that, like, five seconds he's on screen. Wow. And they sent him on his way. Uh, Will Sandon plays the unmasked young Michael Myers at the beginning of the okay. film. I know that he's gone on to do a lot of stuff that was like, he was the pull for movies. He's like mm -hmm. one of those genre stars that are like, please be in our movie. He was yeah. young Michael Myers. He's in our movie. So, like you said, the budget was $300,000, which mm. is nothing now and was still very small back in the day. Um, Mustafa Akkad who's, like, the lifeblood of the Halloween franchise. For the first, what, five, six Until movies? he died, I think, in 19... In, like, 2005 in the... or something. Yeah. yeah. I, the, the majority of the movies, he's done. And I think the, maybe the exception of the remakes, I think maybe his son did those. Because I know his son mm -hmm. for sure produced the 2018 one. Yes. So he gave him up 300k. Because of that, the wardrobes, props... You know, most of them were crafted from items that they had or mm -hmm. that could be purchased very cheaply. Uh, Carpenter hired Tommy Lee Wallace as a production designer, art director, location scout, and co-editor. Like, because it's a small film, everyone does, like, so ten much. jobs. Kind of like yeah. Evil Dead, where, like, yeah. you would be an actor, you'd be a grip, you'd be an editor, and you'd be good at makeup. Mm -hmm. So, he did all this stuff, and Wallace is the guy that created the trademark Michael Myers mask, um, which famously is made from a Captain Kirk mask. Uh, which which Good purchased for like Shatner. it was purchased for like two dollars from a costume shop in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. He widened the eye holes and spray painted it bluish white. Um, because in the script it said that Michael Myers has the pale fe features of a human face, like mm -hmm. because of that like blank emotionless sort of thing. They wanted to reflect that, mm -hmm. and he said that you know it would be easier if I could make it pale. And John Carpenter commented, "I can only imagine the result if they hadn't painted it white." That children will be checking their closets for William Shatner for decades. <laughs> and it's like, if you look at William Shatner now, like, he's much more shorter and, like, kind of compacter. Like, he looks... Like, you can kind of see the, the, the mask there. Insane. Like, especially now that he's older. Oh, yeah. So, I just think that's so hilarious that, like, their kids would be terrified of William Shatner. He'd never work again. <laughs> so, uh, Deborah Hill adds that the idea was to make it like I said, like humorless, mm -hmm. emotionless, you know, this 
sort of thing that could be human and also not at the same time. Uh, many actors wore their own clothes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis purchased a lot of her stuff at JCPenney, um, clearly because she's a little bit more like seemingly high class than these mm-hmm. other girls. I mean, it's also the fashion at the time, but it's a yeah. little bit more high end. Um, Tommy Lee Wallace described filming as uniquely collaborative because everyone did everything. Like, everyone's filming, everyone's doing the setup stuff, and they filmed it over four weeks in mm-hmm. May of the year that it was produced. So I'm just thinking that, so they shot it clearly in California. Yeah, it was in South Pasadena. Yeah. I just, it's crazy that they got it to look like fall. Just like fall. It looked like a Midwest fall in the summer, spring, summer in Southern California. Yeah. It's wild that they got to do that. Um, So that's a bunch of background shit about the first movie. What's really cool about it to you? So for me, I think some of the biggest things are Loomis's monologues just about how pure evil. Yes. Michael Myers is, how this child was just so blank and nothing faced him, no matter what. And then I think some of the best aspects that horror movies to this day still try to encapsulate is the horror of the background, Michael Myers. Like, there are points where you're in his point of view, but there are other points where you're following the other main characters, and he's just chilling in the background, or his car passes by, and it's just so creepy that he could be there at any moment yes he could be anywhere at any moment well and the you know the kind of stereotype with michael myers and just any slasher villain is like they can just kind of show up anywhere for the most part that's not really the case like yeah he disappears a lot but he's not like popping up in you know, impossible places. You know, like, he could realistically he just, have gotten there. Well, and at the time, because they do it a lot in the sequel and in you know, Halloween 4 and 5, where it's on Halloween. Mm-hmm. Someone in a mask is not out of the ordinary, especially just him casually strolling. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't look menacing on yeah. Halloween. Any other time, that's terrifying, but on Halloween... That just seems pretty normal. Yeah, it makes sense to see someone in a mask and, and a jumpsuit. you know, it, it gets to that thing that I always think of as very scary, is that it, it touches on this kind of cultural, you know, everything seems safe. Like, Halloween up until this, like, this is kind of like the jaws of Halloween. Mm-hmm. If Halloween was safe, it was innocent, it was fun. But... You know, Deborah Hill, I think with the with the implementation of the Samhain stuff and the evil spirits, like, Halloween is a commercialized version of a pagan holiday about the festival of the dead. Like, there is a one-to-one bridge between what it is now and what it used to be. And Halloween, Michael Myers, the shape, is that bridge. Mm-hmm. He's a force of unspeakable evil that cannot be destroyed or understood or reasoned with, dressed up in a Halloween costume that looks like what he is, which is just evil incarnate as a man without any emotion or color or feeling or identity. And he's killing people that are just having fun. Like, yeah, he doesn't murder children in this movie. Yeah. But the people that he's killing are... Essentially, children. They're teenagers. They're having fun on Halloween. You know, yeah, they're messing around with their boyfriends or whatever, but, like, that's not not being, you know, they're just being teenagers. They're having fun on Halloween. They can't trick-or-treat anymore. They're they're doing their thing. And this, I mean, I didn't want to get into all the bullshit about, like, 
it invented all of these themes about the genre and it's like punishment of women it's sadist like look at punishment of people that are quote-unquote sinning all these like psychological dissections i'm like forget all of that at the base core it is about a it is about pure evil stalking pure good and that's mm. essentially what slashers kind of are but they always miss the mark this is the one that invented and, and truly closed the door yeah <laughs> like it opened and closed the door immediately to be like this is how it's done and it's like you can't be- remake that because the reason that works is because it's halloween because it's the time where good and evil like historically would meet in the middle yes. and uh i think that's what really permeates especially why it has a franchise because mm-hmm. it, it's the first thing that really touched something that no other movie had done before and they tried to recreate that with halloween too <laughs> so well to your point before we move on from it with michael myers not looking suspicious like suspicious on the night mm-hmm. in halloween 2 we see another person who is in that same mask and the same jumpsuit who's just a teenage boy yes he's just a kid yes like, it does not look wrong to look like this on that. And night. I liked that they kind of did that because then it, it stands to reason that, like, Michael didn't just, like, get a jumpsuit and then find a weird mask and then make it different. Like, he. That's the mask that's out. Something there. else, yeah. It's like in Scream, where they're like, they just went into a costume shop, picked something up, and are killing people in it. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to figure out, you know, you know, anyone that's wearing it could be the killer. Yeah. So for Halloween 2, this was 1981. It's been three years now since the 78 original. So the rough down is, so Halloween 2 takes place on the same night as Halloween. It's the direct continuation. It takes place 30 seconds after the first one ends. While Sheriff Brackett and Dr. Loomis hunt for Michael Myers, a traumatized Lori is rushed to the hospital and the serial killer is not far behind her. So this is the movie that's... Because in the first movie, Lori just happened to be one of the babysitters he was... He happened to be stalking, and she happened to be the one that lived. Yes. This is the one that cements that Michael Myers and Lori Strode are dynamically opposed with each other. Mm-hmm. Particularly in that they are, they are related. They are, they, they are... This is the first movie, canonically, where Lori Strode and Michael Myers are siblings. Yes. So, this kind of ties into why he's trying to kill her. They don't talk about, okay, well, why is he trying to kill her? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Loomis postulates so Loomis that it's finished being what he started or something. Well, also, I love that, correct me if I'm wrong, but Lori never knows that throughout this movie. Lori doesn't know that. And it's also, this is the first movie that, because we know it's Michael Myers, because Loomis mm-hmm. has been screaming about it for, you know, the whole first movie. Yeah. There's a scene in this movie where, you know, people, because it's, again, after the massacre... But it's only, like, an hour later. Mm-hmm. So some people know. It's not like now where, like, everyone immediately knows. Like, some yeah. people know, but not everybody. And it's like they w- hear whispers of this, the crime scene or whatever, and they're like, you know, I heard it was Michael Myers. And like, Michael Myers? That kid that killed all those people years ago? It's like, yeah, he broke out of a mental institution in his back. So it's like only halfway through the movie does Lori realize that the entire night and the day prior... She was haunted by Michael Myers. She just thought it was a guy. She didn't know who it was. Yeah. So, and that's like, that perspective is kind of like, oh, crap. Like, you didn't even know. Like, and yeah, you're right. She doesn't know that they're related. Mm-hmm. I mean, and 
she's not in four or five or six, but it's the next time. The only movie that she actually knows they're related is H2O. Yeah. Because it's, it's discounting you know, all the interim movies, but it's keeping one and two. Mm-hmm. And it's her, you know... Yeah, Loomis tells it to the police and not to her, because he has very little interaction with her. Well, and he only had just found out of it, which is the yeah. reason he's like, we gotta go back, he's trying to kill Laurie. Because mm-hmm. they had no idea where he was going. It's like, this whole movie is mostly Dr. Loomis, first of all, going freaking insane. Going bonkers. He's nuts. And, like, dangerously so. Yeah. Running around searching cool. for Michael Myers in this town in the middle of the night, you know. Well, and... <laughs> almost killing people in the process. He does kill the teenage boy who's just... He doesn't kill person. him. A cop kills he him. He causes the death. He kind of does. There he is. And then the cop drives into him and explodes <laughs> a truck. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so before we get into the, the wildness of this movie, because yeah. I really do like this movie it's a, a lot. It's a really solid movie. It's, it's a, a solid, really solid sequel, part and two. truly, we'll get into it in a bit, but I feel like it, it feels like a the same movie. It feels like a sequel, like, yes. like a true sequel. So it was directed by Rick Rosenthal, and this was his second, like, directing project ever. Mm-hmm. Like, and after the fact, he did the original Bad Boys movie in the 80s. And for most of his career, he mainly did TV shows. He mm-hmm. did episodes of TVs like through the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. Okay. He did two episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Hell yeah, dude. Um, I love that show. He also directed Halloween Resurrection. Uh, uh, moving on. So he clashed with John Carpenter <laughs> about the film a lot. Uh, the, okay. You know, John Carpenter, he really was like, well, I want to make it like how you made it. Like where it's this mm-hmm. kind of very, you know, Alfred Hitchcockian kind of thrill sort of. And... You know, obviously after 81, a lot of slashers had come out because everyone scrambled to make a Halloween. Yeah. And the ones that were making a lot of money were ones that had a lot of gore, a lot of suspense, a lot of nudity, and a lot of the vibe was less artistic and thrill-building and more standard slasher nonsense. More just, like, spectacle. Yes. So, because of that, you know, Carpenter was like, do that. Mm -hmm. Like, make it successful and he's like well no i don't want to do that so this is the first of many times it's right out of the gate it's right in halloween the first sequel the first time that halloween falls into the studio versus director versus producer problems mm-hmm. um in addition to the writing because john like, carpenter even admitted <laughs> he admits he thinks this movie the, the script of this movie is awful why did he, you think that danny well so part of how he wrote this movie mm-hmm. is he would have a six-pack of Budweiser every day while he was writing this movie. He wrote it in like a week. Yeah. Drunk. And has the, I would say, the, the, the gall to say that it's bad. I'm like, well, yeah, you rushed it and were drunk most of the time. And you wanted it to be like these schlocky slasher movies. Mm-hmm. It's still going to be bad. Like, I mean, I don't know what you want, but... So after the massive success of the first film, I, I mentioned this up top, Universal picked up the sequel. They funded mm-hmm. this movie. Um, they wanted to make a third one, obviously. Uh, Season of the Witch didn't fare so well, so they gave up the rights to uh, Troncus International, who produced films until 89. So they made four and five. Yes. Um, we'll get into all the problems they had. I was like, we'll deal with that And then next once time. in 96 happened, so after Curse of Michael Myers, they gave it to Miramax, who then just shot it in the face. So... The cast is very similar. So Dr. Loomis, Jamie Lee Curtis are in it. Jamie Lee Curtis at this point has taken off. She started cutting her hair very short, so she's wearing a wig for most of the movie to keep yes. it, con- you know, the continuous. Yeah. 
Uh, Dick Warlock is now the shape. Yes. Nick, Nick Castle's retired. Uh, so before we get into the mask and the differences, um, so Dick Warlock is a stuntman, mm-hmm. primarily. Um, he's a little bit more stockier than Nick, yeah. Nick Castle because he's, he's, you know, he's a bigger guy. He's yeah. muscular. Um, Dick Warlock revealed that he was trying to get the role of Michael Myers, so he passed by a room that Rick Rosenthal was in wearing a Michael Myers mask and just stood there staring at him. <laughs> and after Rosenthal continuously asked him who he was and why he didn't reply, he took the mask off and asked if he could play Michael Myers. Which is the ultimate So goal. he just stood and like, stared at a, him. That's a power play. And then he's like, like who are you? What What is happening? And then like after a minute, he went... I'm good at playing Michael Myers, right? And then he got the part. <laughs> so, I mean, at least, at least Rosenthal appreciated his, like, yeah, spunk. his tenacity for it. So, as you said, the mask that he wears is exactly the same mask worn in the first movie. Um, the repainted, modified Captain Kirk mask. Mm-hmm. So, it looks different in the sequel. How I found is because the paint had faded due to a few reasons. First, because Nick Castle kept it in his back pocket. Yep. Um, also, Deborah Hill had it after production. She kept the mask in under her bed for several years. Um, and smoked. And smoked a lot. So it's collecting dust. It's yellow because she was a heavy smoker. And it's wider because Dick Warlock is shorter and stockier, so the mask fit his head differently. So the face is wider as opposed to longer in the, yeah. in the head, like Nick Castle's. So the producers thought it would be, you know, a final sequel. So they let him keep all of the stuff. So the mask, the scalpel, the boots, the jumpsuit, the whole everything. Whole kit and caboodle here. That that means Dick Warlock has all of that. Mm-hmm. So when they went to go make the fourth one, that's why all the masks like, oh, after the fact man. are different. So like they, I think it would have been kind of interesting, excuse me, and kind of bad to use the same mask for like twenty years because it's just like a piece of shit at my well, end of it. And now the studios won't let any of the actors keep anything for fear of if they're going to make another. Well, yeah, well, and this is back in the day too, where it was just like who can, you know, no one yeah. thought about that sort of it's thing. Just, like, yeah. the reason that Deborah Hill probably had it is because they were like, well, we bought all this stuff with our own money. We might as well just keep it. We don't yeah. Care. I was saying, like, if I was working on a production, I'd want to keep a souvenir if I was, like, the head of it. Yeah, but I think it's different from, like, how, like, Darren Lynn Bowsman keeps, like, the the Billy puppets from the Saw movies, mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, Deborah Hill probably just had, like, a closet full of, like, Laurie Strode's outfits that she's like, I don't even, I'm not the same, I just have this yeah. shit. You know, the mask is probably the same thing. So... Granted, so John Carpenter didn't direct this movie. He wrote it. It was very heavy. Him and Deborah Hill were very involved. involved. Um, So according to Dick Warlock, how in quote unquote involved Deborah Hill was, where she was just there, and that's it. Oh, because he a couple times was like, you know, I feel like everyone in this movie really wanted to do the first movie justice, and like no one gave a shit. Mm -hmm. Like John Carpenter didn't care. You know, Deborah Hill was just kind of like, you know, like, because Dick Warlock was like, hey, I want to, you know, make sure my walk's good. Is this good? And she'd look up and be like, yeah, it's fine. Just do whatever you're doing. And he got frustrated with her because he's like, I feel like you should have a voice. You should be heard. You made this movie. You know, we want to, you know, keep it going. But what John Carpenter did have a very vested interest in changing was the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. So... We are gonna do on the way out the theme. The theme from is Halloween going to be too. our outro today because it's it's yeah. the, it's a similar song as the original, yes. but with a whole heavy-handed. Pl- 
platter of synth. And the whole soundtrack is like that, too. Yeah. So, I mean, there's several, like, the, the key tracks from the original movies, like, the shape music is that, like, da da like, low keys on a piano. That sort of music is here, but now there's extra stuff. Mm-hmm. And Lori seems are kind of lengthened and, and improved a little bit. They're, they're modernized. They're yes. made into the 80s. And they mm-hmm. basically just flooded it with, like, synth and techno kind of vibes. Yeah. Which is cool because John Carpenter did the same thing for 2018's Halloween. Yeah. And it's all the same music with some new ones. But they all have this, like, frozen in time. Like, it's the, the, when I hear that music, I think about the mask and how mm. it's, quote unquote, the same one as in the 70s. But because of its age, it's made it scarier. Yeah. So, them using old school synthesizers to make the soundtrack and electric guitars, but using them as if they were cellos. Yeah. It brings this, like, old school grandioseness to the horror without it being you know a creepy modern thing not to say anything bad about charlie closer who i love who does all the mm-hmm. stuff for like the saw movies but they're all yeah. very industrial and modern and you know they they get in your face and they're very intense this was removed but got at you in a different way yeah so john carpenter is no matter what i've said or implied about him for this is a legendary music composer. Com- and composer. Absolutely. And this movie especially. Mm-hmm. I mean, the theme kicks in after my favorite line in this movie where... So, right after Dr. Loomis has shot Michael Myers out of the window, mm-hmm. and he goes to investigate, the body is gone. And a neighbor comes out and is like, what's all that racket? And he's like, you gotta call the police, tell them Michael Myers is coming, all this stuff. And this guy's like, what's this, some kind of like Halloween prank? I've been trick-or-treated to death. And Dr. Loomis just looks at him and goes, you don't know what death is. And then the... <laughs> so before you have time to comprehend that bullshit, that line. the music is, is kicks in. Um, so before we get into kind of the, the rough plot beats that are kind mm-hmm. of, or I think, that set this movie apart, um, the namely is the body count in this movie is way higher. Absolutely. And the gore is way higher. Obviously, that was because John Carpenter wanted there to be more. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's that whole scene at the beginning where he's just walking around the, you know, the still unknown, you know, residents of Haddonfield. Mm -hmm. He spies on those. That old couple gets a knife and just goes and kills a woman, which is very reminiscent of what he does in 2018 when Michael, the scene where I call him is where he trick-or-treats, where he just goes house to house and kills over he finds. So... I think that's cool. Once we get to 2018, I want to do a breakdown of everything. Because it covers every movie. Yes. Like, all of them. Which I think is cool, and that like that's how you do fan service. You don't Absolutely. make it the same movie. You make it a new thing with nods, with nods to the thing. So even if you haven't seen it, but, you, know, you, can still you still got it. Because I, up until this past week, I had only ever seen the original 1978 and then the 2018 movie. So I now have seen Halloween 1, 2, and 3. So tonight when we st- well, start getting to the Jamie tonight. Lloyd series, we're going to get in the weeds. And I'm really excited to see what you think. Yeah. <laughs> because that's like where I think the 2018 ones... Um, what I thought was weird is that people really liked it when the 2018 did it. But they hated it when 4 and 5 did it. Where it's the like mobilization of people like it's not just Lori running away from Michael Myers it's like a mobilization of people getting ready to go fight Michael Myers like it's like they're hunkering down they're like alright let's kill this motherfucker and it's like alright cool cool but you guys hated it when everyone else did it 
so that like classic reveal. So obviously the, the title sequence of the first movie mm-hmm. is this pumpkin. You know, that's like this this going while the credits are going and the score's yeah. playing. The second movie does that same thing, but it opens up to reveal a skull. It's cool. <laughs> I think it's cool. Um, so this movie is primarily set in Haddonfield Memorial Hospital. So after Laurie's experience, she's taken to the hospital. It's the middle of the like graveyard shift. No one's there. You know, the doctor's drunk. You know, yeah. no, there's like no nurses working there. And like... You know, the EMTs are just kind of hanging out because they're just waiting for someone to call an ambulance. So, the setting is almost entirely in this hospital, and it's very creepy. Yeah. Well, I think part of what adds to that creepiness factor is that no one is there. Yes, exactly. Like, no one's... And, I mean, Lori's in this stage where she's kind of checked out from this movie while Michael finds out where she is and kills his way through the nurses and the doctors... Um, namely in that really, really cool, you know, hot tub scene where he comes up behind this woman, she thinks that he's her boyfriend, and he just drowns her in a boiling tub. tub. Uh, yeah, so yeah, this, the movie kind of, just like the original, jumps between what's going on with Lori, in this case the hospital, what's going on with Loomis, and Loomis, this movie, just being crazy. Yelling at police officers, shooting at people, (laughs) um... So, and then Michael Myers kind of has more of a role in this movie where there, there's more following him because he's killing other people that are not yeah. Laurie. And uh, in this, I think the first time that you see him, when it's not like from his perspective, is when he's walking towards where the hospital is. And there's this really quick scene where this kid with a boombox runs into him mm-hmm. in a reminiscent of that shot from the first movie. Yeah. Uh, that's Dick Warlock's son. Really? I think it's cool. <laughs> Keeping it in the family. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, like we said, like this is the first time anyone other than Loomis and the cops knows that it's Michael Myers, mm-hmm. which it's got to be kind of creepier because, you know, these people have heard the stories about this, you know, crazy Michael Myers kid. Um, and he kind of swaps out like in the hospital scenes, he swaps out a knife for a scalpel. Yeah. And fr- man, the... He messes some people up with it. Not only that, but the first time, before you even see him use it... He's just chasing Laurie through the basements. And how Michael Myers chases, obviously, he just walks. He just walks. So she sees him down the hall, books it down the staircase, but is has a bad reaction to medication, so she's lost some of the use of her limbs. Mm-hmm. So she's not very... doesn't have her strength. She's not she can't very mobile. Walk. So he's just walking with her, holding this scalpel. Very closely getting to her several times, like with that elevator, or when she's yeah. trying to climb out of the window, or when she's in that car. Like, the chases in this movie are very good, and yes. very anxiety-inducing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like you said, like he kills people more creatively. Yes. Um, but still, matter-of-factly. Yeah, so like, like, I just need to get this done. Like, but I'm going to have a little bit more fun with it. The him. one that I thought was strange... Uh, in addition to not killing that woman at the hot tub immediately, was that he decided to just drain that one nurse of blood. Yeah, it's just all around her. Which makes for a cool artistic shot, but I'm like, how did he kill her? <laughs> what, did, what did he do to how, you? Yeah, what, did ha- what happened? Um, so when Lewis isn't being <laughs> freaking crazy. Yelling at people. And it's like, maybe it's because, you know, Donald Pleasance was a little bit checked out, mm-hmm. but... He's just, like, unseasonably angry at everybody. Um, like, aside from the scene when they go to the schoolhouse, and, like, when he, right before he finds out that 
that Michael and Laurie are related. And they, they're like, there's a break-in at the schoolhouse. And he's like, all right, what's up? And they're like, well, sir, we found a children's drawing with a knife in it. And someone wrote the words Sam Hain on the chalkboard in blood. And that's it. <laughs> I like. I feel like that was um, John Carpenter being like, what was that shit that Deborah wanted to do in the first, that Sam Hain shit? Like, he probably didn't even know yeah. how to pronounce it. And was like, and... They say, they say it on the wall or something. Didn't you say they mispronounce it in the movie? Yeah, like, I said it. So it's Sal Wen. It's spelled Sam Hain. And I didn't want to be like one of those like new age pagan assholes, but it is pronounced Sal Wen. <laughs> and I think it's a very, I think it's definitely the reason that in Trick or Treat, the kid's name is Sam. I would put money on it. It's Sal Wen, but it doesn't, it truly <laughs> doesn't matter. It matters more in Curse of Michael Myers, but there's too many problems for that movie to have just that be the problem. Um, the last thing I have, especially for Michael Myers, the whole like last 20-minute confrontation with Michael Myers is great because it begins with Michael Myers just power-walking through a door. Yeah. Like a, they're like, oh, cool, we've locked the door. And he just kind of walks through he it. He walks through the glass and is like, it's fine. And then the first thing they do after is wrong, where they just shoot him. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man... And then it's built of bricks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that whole bit. So he's got Laurie and Dr. Loomis in a room. You know, Laurie has shot him in the eyes. And yeah, he's flailing blindly. Around. And in an effort to disorient him further, Loomis turns on a bunch of uh, oxygen tanks. Yes. I think it's the oxygen. I said, it's so oxygen. Like, again here. So Laurie kind of scoots around him and then in an act of... Because at the time they were trying to kill off Michael Myers and end mm-hmm. the whole story... Loomis kind of grabs Michael and gets stabbed and then lights a lighter and the whole room explodes. Mm-hmm. And then in a cool fire stunt, Michael Myers comes out, out, completely engulfed in flames. And just drops. And that's the end of the movie, really. That's yeah. really the end of the movie. And uh, at least for now is the end of our Run coverage Michael of Michael Myers. Because we have a little bit... What, what time are we at right now? I don't have a whole lot for Season of the Witch. We'll be good. Okay, cool. So Season of the Witch comes out in 1982. Uh, Just a year after. Well, because this is when Universal bought them, and John Carpenter kind of had this, like, theory that he would like that Halloween be this anthology type of thing. Every year, a new Halloween-centric horror story happens. And this time, it's Season of the Witch. So this is that Halloween movie where no Michael Myers happens. Mm -hmm. And while I normally skip it, I'm trying to suspend my bias... Just, it's not just because there's no Michael Myers in it. So this movie has a very interesting, very, again, in the roots of the pagan roots of the holiday plot. Mm-hmm. So in 1982, Season of the Witch, kids all over America want silver shamrock masks for Halloween. Dr. Daniel Chalice seeks to uncover a plot by silver shamrock's owner, Connell Cochran. Now, Danny, would you do us all a favor and play the Silver Shamrock ad from this movie? Absolutely, I This will. plays 14 times. Happy, happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Happy, happy Halloween, Silver Shamrock. Happy, happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Happy, happy Halloween, Silver Shamrock. Editing this song, because this song keeps going for about another minute after this. Is it just when it gets like faster and faster and faster when yeah. it's just blinking? Yeah, because there's in the movie while that's playing, there's also just a flashing light interspersed with a pumpkin on the yeah. TV. And if anyone has like 
If anyone's prone to seizures, don't watch yeah, this, this movie. This movie would straight up give you fits. It's going to hurt you. Well, and I kind of... The title sequence of the movie is like that like digital rendering of the pumpkin from that ad. It made me think of like an Atari game. Yeah, well, and the, se- the score is like what John Carpenter... So he did the score again. It's what he did with, with Halloween 2, but he like lost the Halloween theme and upped the synth. Mm-hmm. So this whole movie is just covered in... This like techno y eighties computery sound, with the exception of the Sour Samurai game. <laughs> like the titles like like I when I put it on the story yesterday or yeah, yesterday, yes. um I used the title sequence song and I was like, This is like pretty creepy. And like all the scenes were like the like at the beginning of the movie especially where that man is being chased by the uh the um the men in the suits. It's very creepy. The music is very creepy. It's just everything in this movie is overshadowed by that ad. Uh, so, directed and written by Tommy Lee Wallace. As we mentioned, mm-hmm. he was the guy that worked primarily on the first Halloween movie. Um, he, again, like I said, he was married to Nancy Loomis from Halloween. She shows up as Dr. Chalice's ex-wife in this yes. movie. Uh, again, because it's a Halloween movie, it's full and fraught with development problems. Yes. The film's original act director was Joe Dante, and he approached Nigel Neal to write the film. Dante wanted a new and different story than the two previous films in the series, so he suggested Neal write a treatment around the word Halloween. The producers liked the idea, and after Joe Dante moved on to another project, John Carpenter, regular collaborator Tommy Lee Wallace, came in to direct it. So Neal initially blamed the drastic changes in his script because Tommy Lee Wallace took a bunch of rewrites to the script. <laughs> Ended up like writing over like sixty percent of it. Like he did, wow. mo- he basically rewrote in a whole script. Yeah, which I think maybe be a problem for this movie, and certainly is for later other on. movies later on. Uh, he, but he had a huge problem with it because he blamed them on the executive producer who was an Italian speaker, mm-hmm. not understanding the dialogue when they translated it into Italian, and so Neil requested that his writing screen credit be removed. Once there was all this, like, what he calls comically mystery screenplay, uh, was rewritten by an unaccredited Carpenter. So he also had rewrites, too. Mm. Um, and he actually ended up, Neil did, suing the movie to be like, take my name off this production, I hate it, this movie is garbage, I don't want to be associated with it. Uh, and then later, Tommy Lee Wallace, who received sole screen credit as a writer because of that lawsuit, included more gore and simplified the story. And uh, that sounds like a big recipe for disaster. Yeah. And unfortunately, it is. This movie is a, is a mishmash of a lot of different things going on, but there is a lot of very cool things in it. Okay, there's a lot of really interesting concepts throughout. Oh, yes. The concept itself is that... This, this Silver Shamrock Mask Company is mass-producing, like, they are the people making, like, these three Halloween masks. The masks are very cool-looking, too. Yes. They all show up in 2018's Halloween for mm-hmm. a second. Uh, it's this, like, pumpkin, a witch, and a skeleton, and, all, again, all these ads are constant. It's that sort of thing that, like, if kids see ads all the time, they'll get whatever it is. Yeah. So this one is, like, you know, all these ads are saying, okay, well, in the lead-up to Halloween, you know, we're going to get this big giveaway. You know, at like 9 o'clock or something. So make sure that you're, you tune you're tuning in and you're wearing your mask. And as they slowly unravel the plot, uh, the doctor, um, the doctor, uh, I think it was Dr. Chalice. Yes. 
is investigating this conspiracy because the, the, the company is run by the nefarious Colin Cochran, who's this Irish man uh, who's stolen a stone from Stonehenge and is using it to use magic, I think I'm following it right, Yes. using magic to activate weird magic chips in the Silver Shamrock masks when you're watching a specific broadcast, which is what they were going to do, that kills them. It turns their heads into bugs and snakes. Bugs and snakes. It's nefarious. Yeah, it's a problem. Yeah, with uh, most kids in America wearing these masks. Yeah, so so, it's it's just a strange thing, and I can tell that it's definitely one of those plots that like would have made sense after like one rewrite, mm-hmm. but they've had three separate rewrites with three very different screenwriters. Yes, and I mean. <laughs> There's a quote later that I really want to get to with Tommy Lee Wallace, but before we get to that, um, the two main stars of the movie are Tom Atkins and, uh, um, what was her name? I literally just lost her name. I feel so bad now. But Tom Atkins um, plays the Dr. Chalice. He was in The Fog, uh, as his character in The Fog's name was Nick Castle. It's really? a John Carpenter movie, and they named this character Nick Castle. He's also in Lethal Weapon in the remake of My Bloody Valentine, and he's going to be in The Collected, that third uh, collection movie. Okay. Um, the bad guy, uh, Mr. Col- Mr. Cochran, is Dan O'Hearley. He was in Robocop. He was in Twin Peaks. <clears throat> he's an Irish actor, but he usually just plays bad guys. What's her name? Um, Ellie is played by Stacey Nelkin. Yes. So, up top, I did the research on this. She is... 20 years younger than Tom Atkins. And the two characters have a very creepily rushed romantic subplot. It's uncomfortable. It's weird. Um, But I did did see that both of them thought that the... Because the first scene they did was that hotel scene. And they both remarked after the fact that it was kind of funny. Because she had just been cast on the spot the day before... And they had never gotten acquainted. And the first thing is like, okay, cool, guys, take your clothes off and get in the bed. Uh, and, like, they kind of bonded over, like, that experience. And they, they you know, they obviously were very comfortable. So mm-hmm. while that normally did make me uncomfortable, just, I'm like, this is very weird. Um, at least they were having fun with it. Yeah, at least, the, at least the actors were comfortable. Yes. So trying to keep, so the, while the plot is bonkers, the cool stuff about it particularly are these men in suits, like these men in black sort of thing, and they don't speak, they're very Michael Myers-esque, they don't have like any emotive facial expressions and um, Dick Warlock who played The Shape in Halloween 2 plays this primary one that uh, Tom Atkins' character fights and when he punches it, he punches into it, and it starts like, secreting this orange goo which Mm -hmm. apparently was like orange juice mix, like frozen orange juice mix, so you know, it's like this pumpkin blood. I mean, and they also kill this one guy by just ripping his head off. And, like, yeah. the, the, the effects on both these things are pretty cool. And the bugs, too. I mean, that, it's, yeah. it's kind of cool. And, uh, yeah, so, like, these guys kind of just show up and they're, you know, Cochran's, like, cronies. They just kind of spy on and, like, get rid of people that are, like, too close. Um, and they're all automatons. Like, they're all robots. So he can kind of just, like, do their job. Like, that one guy... You know, kills that one. He kills that man in the hospital. Goes outside, lights himself on fire. Yeah. So like, oh shit. <laughs> so the I guess we'll just because it's 
by the nature of talking about it, we had to spoil it. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, well, the, the shamrock masks, like, are going to try to kill people. Yes. So, how Dr. Chalice kind of thwarts the plan at first is he kind of releases a bunch of these chips into the control bay while people are, like, working on computers mm-hmm. and sets the, like, broadcast to play. And this, like, fries all the computers or something. And then it, like, creates this weird ritual ring. Mm-hmm. And then the Stonehenge rock starts to glow. And Cochrane's in the middle of it. And this beam of laser energy comes and kills him. And that's it. He dies. Yeah. So, during a panel at 2013's 35 Year of, Ter- of Terror Halloween Convention in Pasadena, California, Tommy Lee Wallace was asked by the moderator to explain... As the sole credited screenwriter, the connection between Stonehenge, Ireland, robots, and laser beams that both melt flesh and produce and conjure bugs and snakes from the human body. Wallace's entire response was, It's magic, man. Oh, man. So the ending of this movie is very cool. (laughs) I will say, the best part, in my opinion, about this movie is the ambiguous ending they have at the end. Where they don't answer your last question about it, because... In, in order to thwart their plan, ultimately, um, he calls the radio or the TV stations is like, hey, you have to turn this off of yeah. all the stations right now. And they get it off of the first two, and the third one's well, still yeah. playing while he's yelling into the phone. Well, and as they do it, like he's at a gas station, mm-hmm. and like the TV's on, and kids are coming into Trigger Street wearing those masks, and they just go and stand next to the TV. And he's on the phone like, do it, please, just turn it off, turn it off. And right before it starts, they're like, we have inter- we were experiencing interrupt. And he's like, oh, thank you. And then the kid just turns the channel, the channel. And he's like, it's on the other one, please turn it off. And then it, it shuts off and she turns it to the next one. And he, it's going. Like the, the flashing has started, which yeah. triggers the thing. And he's just screaming into the phone. And then it ends. And the credits roll. And it's very unnerving. It's and very... it's very good to leave yeah. it at that note. So... There, like I said, like there was, there's a lot of beats in this story that I'm glad that the good writing did get through. With that, particularly, the, the beginning scene is fantastic. Um, with that man being chased by these men in black. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while the, the dialogue is very odd, there are some kind of fun parts, particularly with uh, Cochran just kind of explaining his plan. And like, the look on his face, I feel like is he's like, as the character, like, yes, I'm doing all of these things. Stonehenge and magic. Don't ask me any more questions. Because <laughs> we don't know how it works either. But yeah. it just does. <laughs> so, thus ends John Carpenter's involvement in the Halloween franchise for, for over a while. 20 years, yes. I think. 30 years. 30 years. Yeah, because this yeah, came out in 82. Yes, yeah, so like 30, over 30 over years. Over 30 years. Um, so what we're going to be getting into on... In the next part. Yeah, Thursday. Oh, no, because we're recording. We're, <laughs> this recording, is all we're recording ahead yeah, of time. I, this is all so, going to drop. Oh, shit, did I spoil that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're recording this ahead of time, so we don't have to record four parts over two days. We're recording a part a day. Uh, so we're Four parts. I forgot that we're doing the bonus episode on yeah, Rob Zombie. Rob so we'll be dropping part one and part two today on Saturday, and we'll be dropping parts three and the bonus episode on the Rob Zombie tomorrow on Sunday. Tomorrow on Sunday. Cool. Awesome. So 
I re- again, like I said last time, I really hope you guys like Halloween. Yeah, because <laughs> we we're, a lot we're to talk getting about. into the weeds of it, especially in this next episode where we're going to have to do a lot of boring corporate like background stuff that will try to make fun into a fun narrative um, that I promise we won't get bogged down on. I know that mm-hmm. you know film history isn't everyone's forte. Um, I just think sometimes it's fun to see, at least for movies that are scary, um, that the people that make them are real. And, yes. you know, everyone's all friends after. I mean, when I was a little kid, my mom would always tell me that, like, you know, they're all friends after this. Like, don't worry. Mm-hmm. To, like, kind of assuage my fears. So, I mean, and I, some of it's kind of fun, especially because we're talking movies in, you know, before horror was this cultural icon. Yes. I mean, it was back in the day, but it was different. It mm-hmm. was a very different world. So, I just think that some of, some of the time that deems, you know, and a little extra, a little yes. extra attention. Yes. Especially sure. when... A movie like you know, *Season of the Witch*, where I don't have a whole lot cool, like great to say about it. I'm like, there's, you know, it's one of those movies that unfortunately gets bogged down by writers and yes. producers. And unfortunately, as we go on, they're gonna More get, they're gonna be like that. And it's just because any time that anyone makes something that makes a lot of money that changes everything, people want to make money off it, yes. and they think that they know better. Because they're like, well, I have the money, and I know how it should be spent, because I know people. And it's like, mm-hmm. dude, people gave me money to see this thing that they've never seen before, yeah. and they're going to be okay and trusting that I'll make more things like it. <sighs> <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. Just, I, I want <laughs> artists to be able to make their art without judgment. <laughs> Or interference from, especially when we get into like Curse of Michael Myers and H. Joe, especially from like the Weinsteins, who are just yeah. like, just make the movie and I'll, I'll mess with it later. And you're like, no, that's not how movies work. You don't do that. Yeah. Being positive, we're being positive. positive. Jamie, Jamie Lloyd is really cute in the next couple movies. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking a lot about Daniel Harris. That'll be fun. Yeah. All right, you stay spooky out there and we'll catch you in part two. What's that behind you? It's the shape! <laughs> <laughs>